0: So he's he's talked about, Paul has talked about uh, the, the body of Christ, how each one of you is a member of the body, how each one has different functions within the body, how the Holy Spirit gives each one power to fulfill his calling. And Paul just said, earnestly desire the best gifts, showing us that it's okay to want gifts of healings. It's okay to see the need for wisdom in someone's life and pray earnestly that the gift of the word of wisdom would be given to you. It's okay to desire these best gifts. It's good to have clear eyes and to see what is needed in the body and then pray for the Holy Spirit to give His power to you or another person to fulfill that need. That's good, but it's not best. Love is best. Now, of course, it's not an ideal or situation. When Paul says, if I have not love, I have nothing, he's not saying, and if I have love, I don't need anything else. Love is all you need. That was the Beatles, not the (laughs) Apostles. It's it's not an either-or situation. It's it's spiritual gifts and love. It's spiritual gifts powered by and used in love. Divine, miraculous manifestations of the Spirit of God that are driven by love and filled with love. We always say that the, the gifts of the Spirit, as seen here, are governed by the fruit of the Spirit. Okay? You don't use any of the gifts in a, in a disconnected way uh, un, unsubmitting to the fruit of the spirit. The fruit of the spirit is love. So when I say that spiritual gifts are good but love is best, we're not saying pick one. I hope you love. No, it's, it's spiritual gifts are good and as Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 12, I don't want you to be ignorant of spiritual gifts or spiritual things. But the spiritual things, the gifts, the ministries... The technicalities really, these these aren't the goal. They aren't the objective. The objective is not to do ministry or be in ministry. Or do do the thing, check out the box. That person was was, you know, they were loved. Check. They aren't supposed to be the defining characteristics of the church. Gifts and ministries, they're important, yes, even necessary, but they are not what we are to be known for, right? They will know you, the world will know you by your spiritual gifts. No. They'll know you by your love. Jesus tells us, love one another. John writes it over and over and over so we don't forget. My little children, love one another. The gifts of the Spirit are some ways in which we love one another. They they are how we love people well, by serving others around us well, with the power that God supplies, but they in themselves are not love. And Paul warns the Corinthians in chapter 13, it is possible to do ministry without love is the most disgusting thing you'll ever see. (laughs) So once more, within the discussion of spiritual gifts, love is introduced here not as something opposed to the life of the Spirit, but as a matter of the highest priority within the life of the Spirit. Paul is also showing love to be the fuel for the spiritual gifts. Love is what makes the spiritual gifts effective and, in a sense, valid. The first few verses are Paul going through various gifts of the Spirit and showing that without love, they lose their proper place, their edge, their identity, their usefulness. In verse 1 of chapter 13, he says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clinging symbol. What are we talking about here? We're talking about speaking in tongues... And speaking uh, eloquently, with a a high value placed on the fancy words and stuff. Sounded a little smart. He's he's talking about speaking in in tongues, and we'll talk more about uh, about that in chapter 14. And we'll see uh, that the Corinthians were using this gift incorrectly. They were interrupting each other. They were shouting all the time at the same time. Paul said that anyone walked into your church service, they would absolutely think you're insane. I'm not sure they're wrong, right? So it wasn't. But it wasn't just a matter of order or decency or like taking turns that was the Corinthians' main problem. It was a matter of love. They weren't loving each other well. Now we also know that they valued the gift of tongues very highly. And here Paul is saying, if I speak in tongues, if I, the apostle Paul speak in tongues, which I do, by the way. Chapter 14, verse 18, he says, I speak in tongues more than any of you. But if, if I do that, and I don't have love, I am nothing more than an annoying sound that drowns out all other speech and music. I am an irritation. Nothing more than loud nonsense. The Corinthians were proud of their gifts. And they wanted to show everyone how great they were with their gifts. And Paul says... When you do this without love, you are the worst thing anyone has heard. It's annoying. Stop it. The gift of tongues is a big deal for them. It's probably not the same for most of you, but I would invite you to apply this same principle to whatever gifting you think you do have. The Holy Spirit has given gifts to each or all. And it's okay to be excited about every single one of them. And it's good to desire the best gifts. But if you seek to use your gift without Love for the Lord and His church. You're an offense. And what should be beautiful and soothing, I mean, think of hearing angels speak, right? He said, though I speak with the tongues of angels, just imagine angels singing, angel choirs all around. He said, though I speak with the tongues of angels, but instead of that being a good thing, it becomes a chaotic embarrassment. Love is what makes the difference. Are you using your giftings for the good of others because you love? Your church, because you love these people that you go to church with. Or are you using your gifting because you're like, well, I can do it, so I should do it, and I'm good at it, and this is what I do. And honestly, I kind of like it when people know that I'm doing what I'm good at and what I do. (laughs) Are Are you serving because of love for people or because you like to be seen and heard? Or maybe just the satisfaction that you did something. And you know it's like, well, there's a big checklist today, but I served. Check, did it. Awesome. You can do that without love in a minute, in a heartbeat. I think it's our default state, in fact, to do that without love. Speaking with the tongues of men and angels. Again, primarily, probably this is talking about speaking in tongues, because that's where he's going to take the conversation chapter 14. But it's also a reference to speaking eloquently, in a way that makes the speaker sound good and smart and noble. When, when one of the King Herods, there's a handful of them, you know, but one of the Herods uh, speaks to this adoring crowd in Acts chapter 12, they said, The voice of a God and of a man. They say, Your speech is heavenly. And then worms eat it and he dies. <laughs> <laughs> Great principle. Uh, uh, heavenly speech could simply refer to being an excellent speaker. And even this, without love, it's noise. It's noise. It's just noise. Go to verse 2. He says, And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries, and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Um, You know, Jesus says, that if you have faith, like a mustard seed, right? You could say to this mountain, be thrown into the sea. And Paul says, If I had that mustard seed, I could do it. And I could just move mountains left and right. um, Without love, this is nothing. Now, I think it's really cool that Paul is speaking of himself as the example, instead of them. He doesn't say, you could have all knowledge, Mr. Corinthian, and you could have all faith. He's pointing to himself, the apostle, someone who is gifted in a variety of ways, someone who, you might say, outranks them, but he's saying it's pointless. All this is pointless. This apostleship that I have, the prophecy, like, I wrote the Bible, it's kind of a big deal. <laughs> my,
1: my ministry,
0: the ministry of the apostle Paul is Pointless without love. It's worthless without love. And you can see also that he goes through more of the gifts that he had just mentioned in chapter 12. Prophecy. The word of wisdom. That could be understanding all mysteries, right? I understand all mysteries. You have the knowledge and wisdom. Uh, Though I have all faith. He mentions faith as a gift. All of these are mentioned in chapter 12. Paul said that he could have all of these and still be nothing without love. He's making it personal, but he knows he's personalizing it for the Corinthians too. It's impossible for them not to see that these words apply to their church. And they're not the most flattering of words. In verse 1, he said, Without love, you're offensive, annoying, confusing, and kind of embarrassing. That's a paraphrase, by the way. Uh, Not verse 3, a word for word translation. Here in verse 2, he says, Without love, you're nothing. You're nothing. We know there were those in Corinth that really thought they were something. They wanted to present themselves in a certain way, impressive, authoritative. And when they see Paul comparing them to You know, banging on pots and pans instead of the beautiful music that they thought they were producing. They've got some thinking to do, don't they? There were members of the body who were so caught up in their own self-image, their own giftings, that they were able to say to other members of the body, I have no need of you. That's a line from chapter 12. They were so satisfied with their own position within their congregation, their own gifts and abilities, but Paul says, you there, hey, with all the cool gifts, with all the skills, with all the talents, with all the Holy Spirit anointing, without love, you're nothing. And that's where I would be, too, if I didn't have love. That's where we'd all be. That is what we would all be without love. Nothing. He's forcing the Corinthians into an identity crisis. I'm not. I thought I, thought I was something. It felt like I was something. But no, no, without love, well, you got to look in the mirror here. Huh? Without love, you're nothing. It's not easy to be told you're nothing. <laughs> I don't know of any therapist or counselor going in with Paul here, and I think I love it. <laughs> I, I, I mentioned that the defining characteristic of the church ought to be love, and the defining characteristic of the individual Christians within the church ought to be love. But instead of taking on that identity, love, that we're given, we identify ourselves in a number of other ways, right? By what we do, or what we're good at. Paul is showing you a more excellent way. He's showing you something better, more secure, more godly. There are those in Corinth, and there are those in all the churches in the ages since 1 Corinthians was written, that would look at their ministry role, or the things they do, and how they are used, very good things usually, valid ministries that are good to have, and say, that's me, that's me, this is who I am, this is who God made me, this is how I serve. And Paul says, if that's you, and you don't have love, you're nothing. If your gifting defines you, and gifting is without love, you're nothing. Now, this is theologically true, but practically true, too. You'll see this if you've ever met someone whose identity was wrapped up in their ministry or work. This applies to situations outside the church as well. And then that ministry failed or was taken away. Prophecies may fail. Tongues may cease. There's a disillusionment and a disorienting that takes place. There's probably uh, some big theological truths in that statement about prophecies failing in tongue system, but we might broaden the scope and say, you know, your home Bible study will fail, your prayer group will fail, your worship team will fail. So whatever ministry you're involved in, things come to an end. Love never ends. It never ends. So if you have a choice of prioritizing one thing or the other, pick with the one that pays the longer-term dividends. Prioritize love. Here's something I've said before, and I'm happy to repeat it. When you look at how you're called to serve, which you are, you're called to serve. Find people. Find people, not programs. It's not about what you're going to do, it's about who you're going to Let's make sure we frame this chapter correctly. When we're talking about 1 Corinthians 13 and its kind of love, we are specifically talking about a love for people. Okay? We're not. Talking about love as a general nice feeling or the love of what you do. I love my job. That's great. But that's what we talking about here. It's not really talking about love of God, as essential as that is. We're talking about loving people. It's easy to say that you love Christ and then not love his bride. John says it's impossible, but we convince ourselves of it. But without love, we're nothing. If we don't love other people, if we don't love the other disciples, we're just faking. The whole Christianity. And Paul says in verse 3 Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not loved, it profits me nothing. Now, Romans chapter 12 uh, mentions giving as one of the spiritual gifts. Generosity can be a work of the Spirit. This verse might be kind of hard because most people would think, well, if you're giving all your things to feed the poor, you must love them, right? If you're willing to die for your faith, giving your body to be burned, you must love the church. Well, not necessarily. Paul says it profits me nothing, pointing out the flaw in the thinking of some of the unloving givers. He mentions the word profit here. The idea, this still exists today, but the idea seems to be in Corinth and, and elsewhere, well, if I give money to this poor person, God will bless me. And the more I sacrifice my comfort or even my life, well, then I'm earning that extra level. God will have to reward me in heaven. Paul's saying transactional generosity precludes love. And it's worthless. It profits you nothing. Transactional generosity isn't generosity. Jesus says, give, expecting nothing in return. Are there rewards in heaven? You bet. Does our generosity here and our sacrifice, you know? Pay dividends, so to speak, in eternity. It sure seems like it. Jesus talks that way, and so do the apostles. Store up treasure in heaven, right? But is storing up treasure really just a matter of numbers or, or level of sacrifice? No. You store up treasure in heaven by loving well. Loving is the key. Giving may flow from that and often does. Sacrifice will as well. But the act of giving isn't the goal, it's love, which then produces these kinds of things like giving and sacrifice. It's been said that you can give without love, but you can't love without giving. And I think that's probably true. What Paul is doing throughout this chapter is putting the horse back in front of the cart where it belongs. The Lord will call you to lay down your life. Maybe not in an actual fire, but you are called to take up your cross and follow him. The Lord does call you, he has called you to give to the poor. To care for the poor, that's something that you as a Christian are called to do. But even these noble acts will become nothing but bad investments for the selfish, unloving person. Now, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So there is a sense in which giving to the poor will increase your wealth. If you give more to the poor, your heart will fall through with that. The desire to love is a kind of love in itself. So if you want to give to the poor, that shows that there's... Probably already the seed of love there that the Spirit is nurturing. But normally, giving is not a way to purchase something for yourself, right? Including an internal change in your attitude. You don't give in order to change, you give in order to give. That's it. Normally, giving and sacrifice is an expression of love and obedience to the one you love. Without this love in your heart, the greatest acts of sacrifice are little more than religious masochism, they profit you nothing. Now, verses 1 through 3 have told us how empty loveless ministry can be. It is, really, by definition. Where loveless eloquence, in whatever language, produces clamor and noise, love, by contrast, is sensible, beautiful, and harmonious. Where loveless ministry, whether it's prophecy or faith or whatever, makes the minister pointless, and leaves them without meaningful identity, love marks you as a disciple of Christ. You will be known by your love. There's a better thing to be than any ministry title you can imagine. Disciple. That's it. I'm a Christian. How can I tell? Because I love people. And where loveless generosity is just a bad investment, loving sacrifice, love-filled giving, stores of treasure in heaven. Now in verses 4 through 7, Paul describes this kind of love. He shows what this beautiful, profitable love looks like that gives us our identity as Christians and breathes life into all of our various ministries. Uh, but there's also something that Paul is doing here sort of beneath the surface that I want you to have an eye for. Paul is talking about God. I mentioned how we always go to this passage and hold it up to ourselves, and of course we find ourselves wanting. And we, we look, come to this passage and we, we get our marching orders. We say, yes, I should be these things. That's correct. <laughs> But what we're also seeing is is who God is like. Who God is. We aren't love. God is love. You can hold this passage up to God himself and say, yes, he's really like this. He really loves us like this with a long-suffering love. His love really does endure all things. This is by his design. And yes, it's the model that we follow imperfectly. It's what we aim for. But this kind of love is complete in Christ. These aren't characteristics that only exist in our ideals and imaginations. These are descriptions of what our God is like and how he relates to us, and what he is making us into. Because we're becoming more like him, aren't we? So we see what love is like in ministry, since that's the immediate context, but we also see what love is like perfectly, since God himself is the greater context. In verse 4 it says, Love suffers long. Our God is long-suffering. You've probably heard this, love is patient. But I like the word long-suffering because it's true. (laughs) Patient sounds like waiting in the waiting room where you are a patient. (laughs) And you twiddle your thumbs and read old magazines and daydream. Long-suffering is something different. It sounds like suffering for a long time. And that's what it is. (laughs) Loving others involves suffering for a long time. Loving others is being willing to have them rub you the wrong way for a long time. People are hard to be around. Some of them will become easier with time. Others won't. You have to love both kinds for a long time. And our model here, of course, is God himself. It's Jesus Christ. There's a T.S. Eliot poem where he, he writes of the notion of some infinitely gentle, infinitely suffering thing. God has suffered more than you. He has suffered for love more than you. He has suffered by your hands. And his love for you is as long-suffering as ever. He has not abandoned humanity even when it killed him. That's the kind of love that we're called to. Love is long-suffering. It suffers long and is kind. Kindness is underrated. And it almost seems too simple, right? Too unsophisticated, too soft. love as we we're describing it, it, is this great, big, all-consuming thing? God is love. It sounds belittling then to say that God is nice, uh, but it's not. It's not totally wrong.
1: You know, in the Old Testament,
0: love is often translated loving kindness. This is an attribute attribute of God. God treats people with kindness, and He is kind. The patient, long-suffering quality of love may be an internal virtue that goes unnoticed, but your kindness will be evident. You can't hide it. You can't fake it. When Paul writes, let your gentleness be known to all men, to the Philippians, he's talking about this kind of quality of love. Kindness, gentleness, this is, these are things of God that we are to imitate. David prays to the Lord in 2 Samuel twenty-two thirty-six: 36, your gentleness has made me great. Isn't that cool? Your gentleness has made me great. We become like God when we treat each other with kindness. Now, this may raise in your mind the question, well, what about, okay, but, but like, tough love, right? <laughs> like, Paul isn't afraid of being harsh sometimes. He seems kind of mean sometimes. And, and that might not look like your idea of kindness, but the, the kind of that kind of thing, what you're imagining when you think of, like, tough love, is when there is a specific, grievous sin that needs to be corrected, where to to avoid a toughness would be to allow the sin to continue, and the toughness or correction is the only way of getting that grievous sin to stop. That's, that's when that kind of thing is needed. It's a special case. It's not normative. It's not how we treat each other. The kind of correction that Paul has to bring sometime, that's medicine, not meat. You can't just be rude always and say, well, mine's more of a tough love. No, you're just being. Uh, way, you know, the way the way the body is supposed to work with its various gift is in kindness towards one another. And as love remembers to describe all the other gifts. Every kind of spiritual gift is to oper- to operate under the authority or heading of love. Which means if your gift is encouragement, it's kind encouragement. You know, it's long-suffering encouragement. If the Lord blesses you with a gift of prophecy, that is to be delivered with uh, without envy, without being puffed up, with long-suffering, with kindness, with all of these uh, descriptions here. The way the body works is with kindness, each member towards another. It's like, uh, like we talk about righteous anger sometimes, and it's true that there's absolutely a place for that. It's just that most of the time, your anger isn't righteous. Um, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Just means we've never seen it in the wild. Um, but the exceptions there, the exceptions don't excuse the rule. The rule is love, and love is kind. Love does not envy. And this ties back to the issue in Corinth about some of the giftings being seen as necessary and others as inferior. Oh, we don't need your type here, and you're not very impressive, that kind of thing. All the members of the body wanted to be the face. There was envy of other gifts. Envy is a kind of coveting, the breaking of the 10th commandment. It is opposed to contentment. Uh, You could even say that love is content and that it is not based on other people's success or failure or your ability to have what other people have. Envy is is the dark side of jealousy. They're not the same thing. There is a righteous kind of jealousy. We see in Scripture that God is jealous. And that's a, a strong desire to have what is rightfully His, namely your soul. Envy is a strong desire to have what is rightfully not yours. God doesn't envy, but he is jealous for every part of you. Love does not parade itself. is not puffed up. These ones go together. Puffed up is a way of saying arrogant. Someone who is puffed up is just full of themselves. And what does that kind of person do? They parade themselves. And they make it all about them. They show what they've done and how great they are. That kind of service, so-called, is not loving. It's selfish. Jesus addresses this in the Sermon on the Mount. We read some of this passage last week. I'm going to read it again. It's Matthew chapter 6, verse 1-3. through three. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the street, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is serious, and those are those are some strong words. This act of service on parade, done in order to be seen by others, is something that will get absolutely no mention in heaven. In fact, it sounds like it discredits you. In the heavenly economy. The person who serves and then invites praise or even attention onto the act of service that they themselves committed, out of the goodness and generosity of their heart, that person has the only reward they're going to get, right there in the attention of others. That that verse about, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, we mentioned it last week too, in Matthew it's applied to giving, it's sort of a funny exaggeration of saying, your giving is going to be so secretive, that even half of you doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> and this verse gains a little bit of extra color in light of Paul's body metaphor, saying that we're all bodies, all parts of the body, right? When you, as the right hand, gives, there is no left hand in the church that needs to know about it. This goes for most acts of ministry or acts of righteousness, as Jesus said in Matthew 6 1. So you don't make a parade of it. Love does not parade itself, it's not puffed up. God Himself, who certainly has a right to parade Himself, Instead has a habit of hiding himself. Jesus is humble and does his work humbly. From the manger to the grave, he is hidden in humility. And he is accessible only by those who will follow his example. To see a baby in a manger, you have to bow over, you've got to look down. To enter an empty tomb, you have to stoop. You have to bow your head. Love does not behave rudely. If love is kind, then it doesn't behave rudely. This makes sense. It's important to add the word behavior here because it's very possible for people to isolate their idea of love and put it in a category of a spiritual, higher-level reality that is so spiritual it doesn't actually affect any of your behaviors. (laughs) You can't be loving and rude. You just can't. Because love does not behave rudely. It just doesn't. That rude behavior, you can't call it love. Call it something else. Maybe rudeness. (laughs) Love does not seek its own. It's, it isn't selfish. Remember that bit about how you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving? Well, love is a giving thing. It's what it does. It's not a taking thing. Love serves. Love gives. Love pours itself out. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The Son of God prayed, not my will, but yours be done. He showed us perfect love and it looked like and it looked like perfect submission. It looked like seeking the good of the other at great expense to self. Love is not provoked. Love is not thin-skinned. Being easily offended is not a virtue. Mm -hmm. Proverbs 19.11, it says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. There's glory and good sense in love, in this kind of love. that is able to overlook an offense. As you think of Paul correcting all the Corinthian infighting and bickering and divisiveness, you know, you think of all the people that want to be super gifted and spiritual and apostolic, and then think of this group of people that are convinced that they're really, really good at what they do, and they look good doing it, and then you add this element of being really, really easily offended. What a train wreck. Ministries will fall apart at the seams with that kind of attitude. Part of being long-suffering is willing, being willing to suffer long, without snapping, without being provoked to anger. The application is simple. Most of the time when you are offended, don't be. <laughs> if anyone had a right to feel offended and be, offended, it's Christ, and He showed us a more excellent way. Love thinks no evil. Our thought life, of course, is where a great part of our spiritual battle lies. But this isn't just an open-ended statement about all the thoughts of, about love. It's translated in some versions "keeps no record wrongs." It's thinking evil about the one who has done you evil. Aren't you glad that our God of love thinks no evil about you and has not kept any record of your wrongs, but instead has cast your sin as far as the east is from the west? infinite. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. If sin makes you glad, you're not walking in love. If the truth doesn't make you glad, you're not walking in love. Theologically, this is important, especially in light of tragedy, disease, and other horrors in our fallen world. We must not think of God as the angry deity that enjoys his creatures' sufferings. When we see the wickedness of the world, we must acknowledge that God himself does not rejoice in this iniquity. Uh, The fatalistic shrug accompanied with the weak one, God has a plan that has no theological depth. The Lord does not rejoice in iniquity, He rejoices in the truth. We can be like him in this and take it away in the things that you in. verse 7. The last one here bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love bears all things. Love is strong under any weight. To bear a burden is to carry a weight and there is much that will be placed on your shoulders that cannot be carried any other way. Mm. The word bears, it's unusual in the New Testament, it only shows up four times, it can be translated covers, which brings to mind Peter's words, and above all things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins, First Peter 48. Bearing all things is love keeping no record of wrongs to the infinite. It's love being patient and forgiving, seven times, 70 times. Now Paul shows, he shows the extent and the magnitude of these attributes. Love bears all things. All things sounds a bit extreme for most of us, so let's consider. Has there been a sin of yours which Christ has not covered? No. Is there any sin which Christ cannot cover through his blood? No. Mm-hmm. Has there been any error, any fault, any wickedness in you that Christ has not loved you? <laughs> you. No. Which means this is not hyperbole. To say that love bears all things is a Christological statement. of fact. Mm-hmm. It just does. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Bear all things sounds extreme. It sounds like an exaggeration. The cross is extreme. The love that bears all things is constant, solid, faithful in all circumstances. Love believes all things. Now, that can make love sound kind of gullible, doesn't it? But this doesn't mean that love believes every lie that comes its way. It means that love believes all the truth that comes its way without wrath and doubting. There's no doubting in love. You know, there's a kind of doubting that is actually a sin. We encounter people in the Gospels when when faced with all the beauty and truth of Jesus, as some doubt it, love will set aside weak doubts in face of strong truth. When you get saved, you fall in love with Jesus. And a skeptic may ask, do you really believe this? Do you really believe the doctrine, this doctrine? And a new believer oftentimes will not have even considered some of these things, and that's okay because they love Jesus, and they basically are willing to swallow the hook, line, and sink, and they're like, I believe it because I love Jesus, and I trust him. That's how love believes all things. You have all your confidence, 100% of your confidence in Jesus Christ. Therefore, whatever he says, you believed it before you even heard it. You don't come to the Lord only after you've passed all the necessary theological exams. Right? You come to him in love. And then accept the things that he says in loving faith. And of course, he has come to you in love. Believing the best about you. It's interesting that this believing all things is really a willingness to give the benefit of the doubt to others. You know, in in our interpersonal relationships, believing all things is uh, a call to approach others with an open heart and mind, extending grace and compassion instead of cynicism and skepticism. God, who knows your heart and all its problems, believes truth about you. And he loves you confidently, knowing his plans for you, knowing how he is going to present you faultless before him in heaven, never again. And that's how he treats you. And that's how we are called to treat one another. Love hopes all things. Again, this can make love sound naive or or impossibly inconsistent. But you have to see how it, how it was intended. Hoping all things, is having confidence in the perfect finished product that we just talked about. Love is extremely optimistic of the future in every circumstance, through every conflict. When you love well, your hope is in the promises that God has given. Part of rejoicing in the truth is this settled happiness that is based in God's faithfulness. He will be faithful. He will finish the good work that he has begun. He will be with us even to the end of the age. He will present his church as a faultless bride. He will come again. He wins. That being so, love endures all things. Because we know that there's no endurance that lasts forever. Love is in it for the long haul. Bearing and enduring, they're close to the same thing, right? It's just... You might bear a burden for a short time, where to bear it for a longer time takes endurance. But filled with the confident hope and faith that love gives, we endure every kind of suffering, every kind of disappointment, enduring all things. When what Paul has done here in writing this is he has taken our eyes off of what specific ministries, what specific gifts, the differences between you and me, what all those things. And he has now lifted our gaze up uh, onto the character of God himself and say, pursue that, go there, dwell in that, abide in this. And when we talk about gifts, and you know, we say look to the giver of, of, and desire the giver, not just the gift. And now seeing that love is the more excellent way, we once more have an opportunity to fix our eyes on the author and finish of our faith. This love that we are called to, it is a gift from the Holy Spirit of God. It is not less of a gift than prophecy and tongues and faith. And he says, love is a gift. Romans five five says, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. Meaning you receive it and he gives it. The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So we go to him. We seek him. We ask our Father to give us the Spirit so that we can love like him. Let's pray. Amen. Jesus, we pray that you would increase our love for one another. That your Holy Spirit would, as promised in Romans 5, 5, pour out the love of God into our hearts. We pray that we would be known in our community and our in our world as those who love well, as the ones who love one another. And pray that the kind of love that we have for one another would be. Uh, would resemble this kind of love. It would look like this kind of love. We pray, Jesus, be glorified in your church here by the love that your saints have for one another. Receive this gift in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Go ahead and stand up. Amen. Praise God from you, all that things flow.
1: Praise Him, O preachers here
0: below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You are sent.